Hey, everybody, it's day four, and we still don't have a... I'm just kidding. We won't talk about that. Anyways, hey, welcome to Disrupt TV. You're in the green room, and we will have some fun here. We're going to introduce our guests. I'm Ray, one of the uh, co-founders and co-anchors here, and we got Val Ashar, my co-founder, co-anchor, and our awesome producer, L. But more importantly, we have guests, and our guests, we're going to introduce them in reverse order. We're going to ask them where they're dialing in from, and more importantly, what are they going to talk about today? So, Nick, where are you dialing in from? What's up with you, and... Maybe you got a book out. So uh, thanks for having me, Ray. And I'm dialing in. I normally say sunny California, but it's actually a rainy California. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about the book we recently uh, announced or we released, uh, The Titanium Economy. Woohoo, Titanium Economy. All right. And uh, Joe, what are we calling him from? And uh, what are we talking about today? Yeah, I'm in the suburban Detroit area, just north of Detroit. And uh, it's. And I, I won't even talk about weather. It's cold. It's rainy. It's gray. It's worse than where any of you all are, I'm sure. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, Take Command, which is a new Dale Carnegie book that I co-authored with uh, my good friend, Michael Crom. Very, very cool. You can pick up that book and hang out at Zingerman's and grab something good in A2. All right, Deb, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? I'm calling in from the gorgeous coast of Maine. Um, and I'm going to talk about, you know, a bunch of old fuddy-duddies running companies in this country. Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> oh, maybe that. It's day four. Oh, maybe. Anyways, maybe it'll be a day five. I don't think All right, well, hey. after day four. <laughs> <laughs> very very cool well hey i'll give it back to you l and for those watching uh we are about to take off okay three two one <laughs> Welcome. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. This is episode one of 2023, episode 305, since Ray and I started this podcast in 2016. You can send uh, your questions on Twitter using hashtag DisruptTV. Follow us at DisruptTV Show and you help if you can help us elect a, you know, a, a house speaker, we'll answer your questions. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. We are seeing that in the last four days. Ray's a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. Literally every other day I see him on TV. It's ridiculous. Uh, he's, in my opinion, in a good way, ridiculous. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to our first episode of 2023. Woohoo, 2023. Thank you, Vala. I'm here with Vala Afshar, and as he said, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. So when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, such as this show. So, but hey, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick off 2023? So when Ray and I invest in a Disrupt TV jacket, our next guest would be a fifth uh, appearance jacket winner. So that's one of our budgeting uh, exercises we need to do for this year because Deb is going to get a jacket. Deb Mills-Schofield, strategic innovation consultant, venture capitalist, mentor, advisor, my mentor, one of key mentors in my life. Deb is passionate about helping companies and individuals see what's possible and implement plans to achieve them. 
Depp co-created Brown University's cognitive science concentration and graduated in three years. Right, it took me six to get out of college. Three years, and as an alum, uh, just co-created a new design engineering concentration, concentration of Brown University School of Engineering. At Bell Labs, Depp created one of AT&T's highest revenue generating patents that we all take for granted today. We can talk about that. Deb's articles in Harvard Business Review is how we met, how Deb and I met. She wrote a beautiful tearjerker article about the impact of network and community, especially if you're an immigrant. And uh, that's how I connected with her on Twitter. And my most amazing experience on Twitter was because of our relationship with Deb and Maybe someday we'll talk about that, although there's been articles written about that. <laughs> Deb's official pan, uh, uh, position at Brown University includes being the university's mentoring maven, adjunct lecturer, member of the School of Engineering Advisory Council, mentor for the joint Brown University Rhode Island School of Design, Masters in Design Engineering, member of the student Van Winkle Ventures Investment Committee, and advisor to several student design and entrepreneurial groups. You can follow Deb on Twitter at D. Schofield. She's very active on Twitter. After this, she'll be even more active. Welcome back, Deb, even though you don't have your jacket to disrupt TV. That's right. I got my LL Bean gear wherever it is. There we go. There we go. If we do get a disrupt jacket, you'll be the first. I okay. promise. In blue. In blue. Okay. All right. Well, hey, Deb, welcome. And this is amazing. You know, we want to take it off the new year and, and really just get a sense of what's going on, what's happening. I mean, leaders are facing what we call the five forces, you know, from inflation to interest rates, to inventory, to infection, to invasion. They're not sure what's happening. And you've got the pulse of what leaders are thinking about in these chaotic times. Now, what, what perspective should leaders take? Um. I could be really flippant and say, you know, a chill pill would be good. Um, <laughs> I, I think leaders have got to get really comfortable with all of this real fast if they're not already, because this is just, I think, how things are going to be. Um, maybe we won't always have a global pandemic, but, you know, the economic uncertainty, all that, um, and and to me, I think one of the most important things other than having, which ties into a compelling value proposition for the user, not for you, um, is it's, I know we always say this, your people, but it is always about um, the people because that's how you build resilience. Yeah, you can build it into systems, into IT, mm-hmm. you know, all that other stuff and processes, but at some point, all that is enabled and used and supported by people. So um i think it's got to really be actionalized i love making voids out of nouns or whatever it is um i mean it's really you've really got to do it not just say it and it's going to be so amazingly uncomfortable um because you can say oh i had to do that during a pandemic and all this but then to say i have to do this now as just the regular course of running business is really scary. And, you know, if you're not up to it, admit it and move aside. Yeah. Wow. So the strong, bold comment. Um, you are known for mentoring a uh, lot of young university undergraduate, graduate students, uh, many, dozens, hundreds. Um, in the time I've known you, I would say hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly brown students. Uh, so really sharp, really um, ambitious, smart students. Um, you and I have a common friend, uh, Saul Kaplan, who's an advocate for random collisions. Mm-hmm. He believes that you can uh, better yourself, your society, community, uh, um, you know, anyone around you, if you have that beginner's mindset and you're open right. to random collisions, because everyone you meet knows more about something than you do. That's just a fact. Uh, so the last two years for these students or young early career employees, you'd have meetings like this and you hit the, you know, leave button and there's no more conversations after. So there are no random collisions before the meeting or after the meeting. No. And no as, a, as, a, as a sponsor, mentor, and our mutual friend Whitney Johnson talks about how sponsorship is even more important right. than being a mentor when it, in terms of career progression for, for the folks you, you sponsor. I used to listen to conversations before the meeting, the great questions during the meeting, and then proactively after the meeting, seek out folks that I thought would be a good use of my t- my time in terms of being a mentor and sponsor, because right. we just can't scale and be mentors and sponsors to everyone. 
Most of the executives I speak to today are struggling because of this hybrid mode that we've been since March of 2020. And we're now getting close to three years of this hybrid environment. What are your clients telling you in terms of productivity, career growth, opportunity for planning, succession planning? And what's the struggle for leaders um, when we've been in this digital setting where it's difficult to do random collisions? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, So it is challenging to do random collisions, but it is not impossible. And I look at one of my clients, um, when they would onboard someone, they would walk that person all around the office and and they were one office place and introduce them. And so they're like, well, how do we do that with onboarding? I'm like, well, you, you got this Microsoft Teams thing. You can just pop in. I said, why don't you just do that together virtually? Yeah, it's a little more work, but... <clears throat> um, and one new hire they brought on, on her own, just started sending messages to everybody in the company saying, hi, I'm new. I know I can't run into you, but can I just spend five minutes to chat with you and see what you do? Nice. Nice. So, you know, there are ways to do it. Is it as easy? No. Um, But it means taking initiative, which means you might care more than just dropping by someone's desk. Yeah. Um, and there's also the, you know, geez, do your due diligence before you talk to someone, Google them, look them up. And then always mm-hmm. when you're talking to someone, you always ask who else should you talk to mm-hmm. um, or ask them who's influenced their lives. Could you reach out? So there are ways to do that. But what I see um, a lot of the, my C-suite, which are my clients struggling with, is productivity is there and it just annoys the hell out of them. In the sense that they want to see you, they want to see you. You know, they would say butts and seats, to which I, you know, tushies and seats. Well, tushies might be in seats, they're just not your seats. And what do you really care if the work's getting done? You know, are you paying them by the hour or are you paying them for the work and the job they're to do? Um, And so that's a huge mindset shift for a lot. And, um, and it's really hard, but that's not going to go away. And if you want to hire the best talent, you, you got to accept it. Um, Deb, Deb, are, Deb, are you seeing trends that say, you know, maybe more established workers prefer to be like at, you know, in a hybrid environment? Or is it more Gen Z that prefer to be in at home as well in the hybrid environment? Or is it just across the board? There's been so it's totally surprised me and I think a lot of people. Although I look back and say it would have made sense, right? So you would have thought the young folks would have really wanted this. Um, Those people with kids or parents, those of us that have all these things to do at home in addition to working. So you got to juggle kids. You got to do this. You got to do that. They tend to just love the hybrid because I can throw a load of laundry in. I can go run an errand. I can go take a nice walk, right? That's true. Um. While the younger folks have redefined, I don't know if we've redefined, but we've realized that the office is a social place, not a workplace. So I look at my son and um, he's 25 and he'd been remote for two years and he actually likes going in the office once or twice a week, but it's social. And I see that with my students that are recent grads working. So they want the social aspect where there are those of us that are past that, that just want the time. Um, so it's been a reverse of what I think most people thought. Now, there are some young people that like the nomad. I have a student who's like in a different state or continent every three months, <laughs> same company she works for. Wow. Um, but in general, it's been more, I think, and um, this is all qualitative, not quantitative, that have wanted to go back to an office. You know, my yeah, son yeah. did an internship. Oh, sorry, Valley. Go ahead. No, go ahead, so. please. Uh, my son did an internship last year. It was all remote. And what was really weird was he it, it lacked the random collisions, right? And, and you couldn't get trained in the, in the normal way. I mean, it was a fun internship. It was great. But but you also didn't have the internship class. You, know, you go after work, go do something, yeah. right? Yeah. You couldn't, like, wait for like someone who is like really smart to kind of get pick their brains and say, Hey, you know, how did you come up with that? Right. All those kind of conversations didn't happen. So it was, it, to me, it felt like, you know, this year he should try something more in person. 
So. Yeah, no, and I, think- I, I think about my own career. I started in grad school doing internships. And, uh, you know, I, I would deliberately find the engineer that I admired most. Uh, yeah. And it may have been the technology he or she was working on. Or I would go to engineering meetings and I would go, wow, th- th- this person is really guiding the direction of the roadmap. And so I would try to find ways to get on their radar. Um, and, and, and many of these folks actually stayed later. They're not, they weren't, they, again, this is not, this is not anecdotal, but, but I remember the great engineers I admired earlier in my career, they were the first in the office last to leave. They were working on projects that passionately. Mm-hmm. And so the times that I had with these folks were usually not, you know, the normal hours. Um, and I, I want to follow up with a question. When CXOs engage you, Deb, it's to help them innovate. You're an innovation expert. Yeah. Well, so, it's, so they hire me to help them create, you know, a strategic plan, which I yes. don't know how to do without innovation being key. So where do we want to be in three to five, 10 years and how are we going to get there? Yep. Is that harder when you are doing uh, this in a hybrid mode? Is innovation harder uh, I mean, it must question. be. I mean, it seems like you're in the conversation. So they're asking for your advice. So I think yeah. I know the answer. Uh, you know, now during the, fortunately during COVID, um, the clients that I actually did a whole strategic planning session with, I knew. But the innovation, there's some you can do remote, but there's the, you know, it's those shower moments. You know, you're in the shower and aha, you get an idea. It's those kind of things that if you're just singing around at lunch, you're walking or you're, whatever and you're not like able to reach out and grab someone and get to the whiteboard um so i think it is impacting innovation i don't know how much and for how long and i don't know what we can do about circumventing that because a lot of people are just going hybrid whether we need to or not um you know to your point about though in the office so when i was just a kid at bell labs so i was 20 when i graduated from brown i go right to bell labs I remember sitting on the floor in the office of um, Cheswin, Cheswick and Bellavin, who wrote the security stuff for Unix. And it was a green carpet in their office, I think. And I would just sit there and listen to them. And there's there's a lot to be said. Yep. We need that. Absorbing. And so isn't it true that isn't it true that that strategic development and planning and innovation is asynchronous? Oh, sorry, synchronous work. It's not asynchronous in nature. So I don't understand. It's not. It's 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 soccer versus tennis uh, in my mind, uh, where there's interdependencies, input outputs uh, that that are required in the in the life cycle of developing a strategic plan or innovation. So I don't really. I don't know how you can make it work as efficiently when you're completely remote or mostly hybrid or mostly remote. Yeah, you can do preparatory parts. So the data gathering, the analysis of that. But when it comes down to really, you know, what I call a planning retreat where we're all sitting together. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've done that virtually. You don't get the same caliber. You, yeah. I, What I think you get is a either a long tactical plan or a really short strategic plan yeah right right unless they all read you know the value prop by alice alex osterwalder you know if they really <laughs> prepped and came to it remotely maybe it would work but short of that very few hard. people are trained to that level yeah, but yeah, yeah but that would know, be a great book that's why i want a planning retreat where we are away from the office and we're all together because you know mm. when the real cool stuff happens in the strategic ideas it's yeah. at night after dinner with drinks. Yeah. It's not, no, I yeah. mean, no, no, no. I've been at the fire pits at the Constellation Connect conference and the, the level of deepness of the conversations that happen casually yes. when people are transparent, radical transparency. They're not, they don't have that facade of fancy words and acronyms and, and, and they're honest about, you know, this, 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 this is shit. It's not going to work. It's not going <laughs> to work. This is, yeah, I know. I love know, that. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I agree. With, I mean, yeah, I don't think you need alcohol per se, but I mean, you know. Uh, well, you know, I'm not a drinker, but. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not a drinker, but you're a thinker. But Deb, real quick, uh, I wanted to talk about one last thing. It's really the shift in work-life balance by generations. And it's something that is emerging everywhere. And and I think we're seeing this. And I always wonder if it was just like, you know, in my generation, we worked harder. Like, is it one of those things? Or is there really a paradigm shift here? Um, so. I think it's both. And I'm very much of an and versus either. But I hear my clients saying, well, these people, you know, they're not willing to put I'm in the hours. a lot. And yeah. I'm saying, hours are work. And I said, but the point, well, they're never going to get to our level with that. And I said, right. And you know what? They don't want to. Yeah. And, and no, they, it's, it's and not an aspiration anymore. That. Yeah. They don't understand. I'm going to give it my all for 40 to 50 hours a week, and I'm out. And they just, and I don't know if they don't under. They don't understand it. And I also wonder for some of them, aren't they a little jealous that they didn't have the guts to say that too? Or our society wasn't faced like that then, you know? This is Deb Mill Schofield, strategic and innovation consulting, venture capitalist, mentor, advisor, and friend of Disrupt TV. You can follow her on Twitter at DSchofield. Thank you so much for kicking off the year with us. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thank you. Happy you, New Year. You as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, just... Please read her Harvard Business articles. She's an amazing writer. And I keep telling Deb she's got to write a book. Speaking of books, speaking of amazing book. Uh, Joe Hart, president and CEO of Dale Carnegie and Associates and author of Take Command. Very early in the year, but my highest recommendation book of 2023. And I don't think this book's going to get dethroned the rest of the year in terms of my highest recommendation. Joe began his career as a practicing attorney. After taking Dale Carnegie courses, Joe uh, reassessed his career path and future and ultimately left practice of law going to work at a top real estate company and then founding an innovative e-learning company called InfoAlly. After selling the business five years later, Joe became the president of Asset Health, a U.S.-based health and wellness company, all before becoming the president and CEO of Dale Carnegie in 2015. In 2019, the CEO forum group named Joe as one of the 12 transformative leaders, giving him the Transformative CEO Leadership Award in the category of the people. Joe is the host of a top global podcast, Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, and he speaks around the world on topics such as leadership, resilience, innovation, among others. He's a great follow on Twitter at Joseph K. Hart, H-A-R-T. Welcome, Joe, to Disrupt TV, and congratulations on this sure-to-be bestseller. Oh, wow. Thank you, Val. I really appreciate it. Uh, great to be with you. Ray, great to be with you as well. Thank you, Jim. No, this is awesome. The book you and Michael Crum wrote is is going to be amazing. Uh, we're so lucky here to get the special preview. I believe the book comes out January 10th. So we're getting the early preview. We're super excited about that. And i just amazed. I mean, I remember seeing a lot of Dale Carnegie concepts um, as a kid, like as my dad was going through management training um, and, you know, as as, as uh, formative in my, uh, you know, adult career. So um, are they still valid? Do they still have application? People keep saying times have changed, right? Like I've heard that like so many times. Um, but do you think, I mean, from, from your point of view, have they withstood the test of time? Yeah, it's, it's incredible to see not only how they have, but also how they, they really transcend culture. Uh, and I think about how, I mean, first of all, prior to the pandemic, especially I was traveling all over the world. And I would see people who were um, taking Dale Carnegie programs and just talking, they'd come up to me and they'd say, oh my gosh, this, this program has really just, you know, changed my life or impacted me uh, so much. But when you, when you go back to Dale Carnegie, Dale Carnegie himself is a brilliant innovator. He re really understood people and the principles he defined, you really to go back a hundred plus years, you know, still apply. People are the same. The way we connect may be a little bit different, but you know, when you look at say, how to win friends and influence people, which has been a best-selling book for over yes. 85 years, the, you know, we have to ask, well, why would that be? And the reason is because it just it remains as relevant and useful today as it as ever has been. So evergreen. So, I mean, you're the you're the CEO, you're the president. So I'm assuming that, uh, you know, someone didn't come up to you and say, Joe, you really need to write a book. This was you and Michael deciding that you're going to approach the task of up, uh, updating this this brand, this brilliant person with such great global reverence. Talk to us about the whole process of deciding, you and Michael, that you're going to take this awesome responsibility to, to create a, an amazing book. Yeah, thanks for asking, Fela. You know, um, part of it is, 
I, I feel like I've received a gift in my exposure to Dale Carnegie over the years. I mean, my, my dad talked about Dale Carnegie when I was younger. Um, I took a Dale Carnegie course as a young lawyer. It changed my, my entire life. My wife, all six of my kids have taken Dale Carnegie. So I mean, this is something that's very, very personal to me uh, and also to Michael. I mean, so Michael really grew up. He's Dale Carnegie's grandson and, and has been you know so close to the, these principles. And so on the one hand, you've got these books that are absolute masterpieces, uh, how to win friends and influence people, how to stop worrying and start living. So, you know, neither Michael nor I, you know, really even uh, presumed to be able to write a book of, of that caliber. What we wanted to do was to take these amazing ideas and, and to build on them and really to contextualize them for today's readers. So every chapter in the book focuses on uh, ideas from Dale Carnegie. And there are current stories and stories from people, from diverse people from all over the world. So it, it's hopefully a book that you know, contextually people can really, really relate to. And my hope would be that people will, it'll, you know, pique an interest in Dale Carnegie. Go back and read How to Win Friends. Go back and read How to Stop Wearing. Take a Dale Carnegie program because, you know, this is something that can really add incredible richness to your life and your career and your family, friends, et cetera. I can tell you, I haven't finished a book. And the reason is, well, one, I'm a slow reader, but 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 two, um, I find that I'm reading between the sentences. Like, you know, I'll read, I'll read a page, and then instead of continuing to read, I, I reflect on the powerful words and sentences and paragraphs. So I'm finding myself rereading pages <laughs> and it's it, and it's not because it's complex language it's not because you know you have some algorithm that i need to decipher it's just uh, so much sophistication in its simplicity like i don't know how to explain it uh but i'm very slowly going through the book and I'm, it's, it's joyful it's 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 really really great sorry ray <laughs> I, I i didn't mean to interrupt you but 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 Anyway, it's 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 brilliant work. Go ahead, Ray. Go. Well, no, no, I want I want to build upon what uh, Val is saying there, right? I mean, uh, a lot of times uh, the the lessons learned, uh, you know, apply just to business, but in this case, I mean, I feel like you can apply that to personal lives, your interactions, um, your inner core, how you think, the frameworks uh, in terms of uh, what what really helps you kind of like make a decision. Um, have people? told you that? Like, this is kind of something more than just a business book, but maybe like a life compass? Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because that's one of the things we hear a lot with uh, our Dale Carnegie programs. People might come in, a company might say, we're going to put people through a Dale Carnegie program. And then people start to talk about the impact it's had on their, them personally, on their, their personal relationships, their families, et cetera. And, and really take command is, is it's the same type of thing. I mean, this is about and just to, to take a step back, if if I may, I mean, there, there are three parts of this book, and it's really, we think about 2023, take command of 2023, you know, part one is take command of your thoughts and emotions, right? So, so you know, I have to take command of myself before I do anything else. Uh, we've got yep. stress and worry and anxiety, lack of confidence, whatever it might be, but, you know, we're dealing with these, and how do we get to a place of just, I can I can deal with adversity, I, I can become courageous, I can be resilient, and then once I, I can, then part two is take command of your relationships, you know, everything we do. And so to your question, Ray, you think about, you know, there are relationships at work, there are relationships at home and my community, et cetera. But how do I build these really strong relationships? And so much of the, the wisdom that we're drawing in comes from how to win friends and influence people for that part and how to stop worrying in the first part. And then the third part of this is, OK, you've you've taken command of yourself. You're strong. You've got this fortitude. You've got great relationships. How do you take command of your future? You know, what's the, the vision you have for yourself? Where are your values? And, you know, Vala, one of the things I really appreciate about your, your tweets is, you know, you're really focused on, on, on people and impact and kindness and legacy and respect, which is something that our world needs so desperately right now. And certainly one of the hopes that we have for take command, going back, Vala, to your point, is that people won't just read this book and say, hey, this is a good book or I like the book. But it's like we want this book to really help people um, you know, have better relationships, be more confident, you know, live the life that you, you want to have. We hope that it will be a manual for how people can develop themselves and their relationships in the world. Yeah, no, I, 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 to me, it's, uh, it's a graduate level set of courses on humanities. Um, and, you know, I, uh, you know, think, you know, I, 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 
you surgically go after uh, 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 specific mindsets like criticism versus feedback. You have an entire, you know, maybe 2,000 words specific to differentiating, uh, you know, how you approach giving uh, feedback so that it's not viewed uh, as, as criticism. And, and I share that on Twitter. And then folks like Tom Peters, who I think is one of the great living management gurus, comments yeah. Uh, so I'm finding that company CEOs, uh, you know, Hall of Fame management gurus are responding to the content in your book because it is uh, it is a it is a blueprint on humanities and how I I feel it's how to live a recommendable life. Uh, if you can take command of yourself and, and and then help create value for folks around you and do that consistently, that's how you live a recommendable life. And in your book, you talk about you know, uh, connecting with people authentically and respectfully, which you and I and Ray try to do on social and when we're in front of folks physically, uh, authentically and respectfully, as well as important skills you can have. I wish I read this book when I was early in my career because I think it would have positioned me better to be even more successful. Talk to us about the importance of authenticity and respect that's required to build and sustain long-lasting healthy relationships. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is our life and we have this life and we can go about our lives trying to be someone that we're not or trying to, to portray something. And, you know, number one, we, we think about authenticity. This is something that, you know, Dale Carnegie talks about people when you give a speech, you know, you give a presentation, um, you know, don't try to be someone that you're not. Be who you are. When, when, when you are yourself, when you're excited, when you're eager, when you're earnest or you just want to share something you've, or something you've earned the right to share, and that comes from you. It, it it's it comes to life. You know, it brings you know, brings you to life. And and that's where we're most fulfilled is is when we are true to ourselves. We we're true to our values. We're true to the 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 things that we we believe. Um, so so we want to act from a place of authenticity, and also we want to respect other people. You know, so you know, you've got different people with different points of view about relationships, and people saying so you have people who manipulate others, etc. Yeah, you know, it's just that that's that's the antithesis of what say what Dale Carnegie would say or that we, we would say, which is, you know, um, Dale Carnegie believed that every single person has an inherent value. That's why we want to we want to respect people. And Val, as you said, you know, every person I meet is is my superior in some way. What can I learn from somebody else? What can I learn from an interaction? And and um, if I'm going to give appreciation to you or to Ray. Why, why not do it in anything but a sincere and honest and genuine way? I mean, Absolutely. so and that ultimately is one of the key things about when we talk about relationships and trust, you know, there, there has to be that that empathy for another person. It's going to be like I can see things from your point of view. I understand yeah. what's important to you and why. And if I don't, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to listen. But when we look at the polarization in the world and just how how toxic things have become, I mean, and that's the that's the byproduct of, of the opposite of what we're talking about, the, the byproduct of, 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 of being undermining and not recognizing kind of that value that, that each of us have and, and that each of us can offer. Ray, I want to just kind of a quick story, uh, because I, as much as I absolutely did 1000 percent with everything Joe mentioned, there's one word he didn't mention. And if I had to describe Joe um, and I met him in person a few, few, few weeks back is humility. Um, so Joe's asking me when we first time met, you know, what, what do you do? I'm like, you know, I write and do some research. What do you write about? Oh, I write about business and leadership and leadership. And Joe doesn't say anything, you know, and, 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 and then after, uh, you know, we break bread and continue the conversation. I'm like, oh, Joe, Joe, what do you do? Uh, I'm the CEO of Dale Carnegie. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm like, oh my God, why did I tell him I write about leadership? <laughs> you know, it's like when you met an athlete, you find out they're a Hall of Fame athlete. You're like, oh, so anyway, the level of humility is that, you know, uh, I had to pull from you that you were the CEO of Dale Carnegie. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, I, I write about leadership. So anyway, anyway, I, I think, and I immediately connected with you, like just like immediate karma. I'm like, wow, this guy is super humble. Um, uh, and so you didn't flex on me, uh, the, your position, and and I wouldn't expect you to do that. But it, I just, you know, reflecting about my conversation, telling you that I was writing about leadership, 
I was having too. I was I was having too good of a time, honestly, getting to know you. I mean, you you have an incredible story and background, and you're the chief digital uh, evangelist you know, for for Salesforce. I'm like, gosh, what what an intriguing person. And we we talked about. I mean, you know, you're you're you know coming to the United States and being an immigrant. All I mean, it's like I mean, it was absolutely. And we talked about your kids, and we talked about. I mean, so so I I, I really it was one of the most gratifying conversations that I had with anyone even when I was in New York for the, that those those couple of days. Um, so I I just I, I was just really enjoying listening. Another uh, formula to success, establishing connection, be an amazing listener and be interested, be interested in people. Clearly, you can see, Ray, I was doing most of the talking when Joe and I met. But uh, so I need to make sure I read that section on being a better listener. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> no, no. I, and I think it's really important. I mean, when when I remember some of those books, like, what was it? Stop worrying and, and start living. Right. I mean, that, that's a, that's a classic Right. I mean, it, it really resets where you are. And, and I almost feel like, you know, today we're living in a world of machine scale. And, and what we're trying to do is get back to human scale. But but a lot of those interactions, whether it's human to human, human to machine, machine to machine, we're going to have to write an operating system that actually works this mm -hmm. way where your interactions, um, not just with people, but with other objects, right, are, are, are going to be ones that deliver trust, right? Um, I don't know how you create digital empathy, but I need something to establish a relationship, and and maybe that's what proof of stake and and you know what you've mm -hmm. done and what you continue to do, or you know what kind of value you continue to do to deliver for folks, right? Uh, without a value exchange, might might even add to that. So let's talk about that. I mean, today it's with people, and the future might be you know operating a machine scale. How do we cultivate trust, build empathy, right? Uh, how do we actually build strong relationships? at least get it right on the human side. Even like you see chat, chat GT, GPT, GPT chat being now uh, blocked at, at, at universities because the output appears to be authentic human-like output. So it's harder, to, hard, harder and harder to judge student uh, creativity and progression because the tools they're using are, are, are incredibly human-like. Well, at the end of the day, I guess it long, as long as we are we're dealing with human to human, and I, I don't know what the future holds uh, for for AI or, or what kind of operating system we'll need for that to help AI operate in a, uh, a a constructive and kind way. But you know, when we think about people, I mean, you know, there, there's a great quote, and it's it's not a new one. It comes from Theodore Roosevelt, which is, you know, people don't care what you know until they know what, what that you care, and you know, and the same thing is true in terms of how we interact with each other. Uh, you know, if, if I'm going to engage someone, am, am I listening to them? Am I respecting them? Am I trying to talk over them? Am I, you know, or uh, am I giving honest and sincere appreciation? All those things are, are things we can you, we can use to, to, to get closer to someone and have let them get closer to us. And then we build relationship. And, and over time, of course, and that's one of the things we talk about in the book, you know, relationships are often tested. Um, you know, they're, they're tested by difficult people. They're tested by difficult situations, you know, and how do we, how do we learn how to navigate those so we can continue to, to grow? Because at the end of the day, we think about, you know, what's life really about? Such a huge part of life is the quality of the relationships that we have. Mm -hmm. And if we've got lousy relationships, you know, we're probably not going to be all that, that happy or fulfilled. Um, so whatever we want to do, whatever our goals are in, in, li in life, whether it's around a, a company or, or a, a, a nonprofit or, or, or an impact that we want to have, you know, I've, I've got to be uh, effective in terms of how I interact with other people. Um, so that's a I big love, I love the section of the book, Joe, uh, talking about handling stress. And, and you gave some incredible physical rest, mental rest, sensory rest, creative rest, emotional rest, social rest, spiritual rest. And I'm reading about all these different types of rest. But then you summarize it with four powerful words. For me, it was so powerful. It, you said, rest is not laziness. And I'm like, you know what? When I was a manager, a people manager, man, I confused folks that asked for time off or would go use the meditation room or would take a nice healthy lunch. And I'm like, yeah, the work ethic, you know, I need to maybe coach him more to be a little bit more focused. And now I realized, boy, I was not a good manager because I was viewing rest 
as possible laziness. So I'm reading these sentences in your in your in your book, and I'm reflecting on my own uh, 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 privilege of managing people and running businesses and bringing products to market. And I realized I made a ton of mistakes. So well, it, I mean, people got to read this book. Well, um, they really do. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure you you are being uh, deeply not only introspective but probably a little bit more uh, critical of yourself. I'm sure that even at the, those times you were a, a tremendous manager. It, it, it's interesting the conversation you just had with with Deb um, about the way that say a younger generation looks at the world. Um, oh, you, yeah. you know, generation may look at things in terms of go 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 and yeah. flip hours and so forth. You know, versus another generation that says, "Well, look at the quality of the work that I'm doing." Um, it isn't that good enough. You know, the, the reality is that we need to cut ourselves some slack when it comes to rest. We are human creatures. And that means that we need to we need to take breaks. We we need to and not just physical rest, but but mental rest, spiritual rest, a whole range of different kinds of things that, that go to who we are. And if we, if we do that, then we're going to be far more effective uh, in, in the, the work that we're doing and the relationships that we have and the goals that we have. But um, you know, taking command doesn't mean not taking rest. Taking command means take command of your mind, your body, your spirit, your your life, and uh, and really live the life you want to live. Amazing. That is that is the optimum world. Live the life you want to live. We're with Joe Hart, President and CEO at Dale Carnegie and Associates Inc., and more importantly, the author of an upcoming book called Take Command. Check it out on the tenth. It's going to be sold for. You know, if you found where books are sold, and of course, find them on Twitter at Joseph K Hart H A R T. And of course, congratulations! Thank My you. highest recommendation of 2023, right here. Take command. Thank you, hey, Joe. Thank you, Amazing. Val. And by the way, it's, a, it's available right now for pre-order on Amazon. You can pre-order the Audible, Kindle, or hardcover. So, awesome. thank you both. Thank you, Joe. Great being with you. Thank you. Thank All you, right. Uh, really a wonderful book. And it's going to take me uh, um, some time to finish it because, again, uh, I'm a slow reader, but there's a lot of nuggets of wisdom. Speaking of that, we only invite brilliant authors on Disrupt TV. Let's just kind of put that out there. And uh, This is what we call the cleanup hitter spawn. If you're not familiar with baseball, it's the it's the you know best selling author that comes and hits a grand slam. And uh, and that's our next guest, uh, Nick Sampnam, uh, CEO, president of Fernweth uh, Group and author of Titanium Economy. Nick uh, was formerly a senior partner at McKenzie Company, a Palo Alto office. He led the North America Industries Industrial Practice. He was co-author of several uh, pieces of McKinsey's leading industrial research. He's on the advisory board of Smithsonian Libraries. He's co-author of Titanium Economy, How Industrial technology can create a better, faster, stronger America. Welcome, Nick, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Well, Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Hey, Nick, welcome. A uh, lot of amazing insights. Um, your book really talks about something that, you know, we haven't really been thinking about, uh, or at least able to articulate in, in the right way. Um, and, and that's really, there's some hidden bright spots right? In what looks like a gloomy outlook, um, as you may have heard and, and seen in some of the conversations you have. Um, we've been trying to psych ourselves into a recession since May. Like, you know, the economies are good in India. The economy is great in Anza, right? The economy is great in the Middle East. Uh, it is horrible everywhere else. It's, it's, but it's been good in the U.S. And, you know, but, but people don't see that. Like, we feel like something bad has to happen. But you're saying otherwise. You're saying, hey, look, this is a bright spot right, in today's otherwise gloomy outlook on the American economy. What is that hidden bright spot? You know, Ray, it's a great question. And uh, maybe you just hit the genesis of this book. Um, as Val mentioned, uh, you know, I used to be at McKinsey. Now I'm at Fernway Group. And all we do is work in the industrial space. I almost can say very first response. As soon as I say industrial, people would be like, ah, you know, the 60s was a great time. That was a great sector. <laughs> I'll be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about? It was not, it was not was. It is a great sector. And that's when Ray, I just realized this light bulb went up and said, wow, this is truly a sector which is misunderstood, mm. undervalued and unappreciated. And the reason I bring this up is I can't tell you, and this is exactly the point you brought up, Ray. People would always say, oh, this was a sector we lost it. Somebody stole it. It was given away. 
And I'm like, again, guys, this is all past. And first of all, it's wrong. We're doing great. And if you look at the industrial sector, and I'm going to use the word industrial sector and manufacturing sector synonymously because they're, so, they're not the same, but they're intertwined. Sure. It's doing great. And uh, you saw about it in our book. We actually went and profiled 35 companies, and that's not exhaustive. There's way more companies. And these are the companies right here in the U.S. doing amazingly great work, developing great products, hiring great employees, creating great value for the ecosystem. And best of all, I mean, I'm sure we are in a capitalist society. If you're a shareholder, <laughs> making a lot of wealth for the, for the shareholders. And we talk about this company called Heiko in the book, which very few people have heard about. And when we dug in, and we also didn't know about this, when we dug in and we spoke to the CEO, Larry Mendelson and uh, Victor Mendelson, we found this is a company which has actually done better than any of the stock you can mention out there. I mean, if you look over the last 30 years and if you had to go invest a dollar, they were in the top 10 of creating shareholder value. Wow. I, they would have done better than Google. They've done better than Facebook. They've done better than wow. Netflix. The list goes on. And here people are like, what? I never even knew about Heiko. And I'm like, and fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> it's one of several companies. So you mentioned you identified 35, which is just a small subset uh, of, of these companies that you, you you bundle and call titanium economy, these, these industrial tech sector companies. Uh, how significant is the contribution of these companies to the American economy? Short answer, Val, huge. I mean, if you look, just I'm talking North America, right? I'm not even talking global. If you look North America, there are north of 4,000 companies which classify into the industrial, industrial tech space. Wow. A big chunk of them are, 80% uh, of them are what would people would call mid-cap companies. About 2,000 or 3,000 of them are private, family-owned companies. Okay. And they are fortunately or unfortunately not in your tier one, tier two cities. They're not in New York. They're not in San Francisco. They're in cities you and I would not have heard about, which is probably very difficult to get in. But they've created a very vibrant community. I mean, we talk about this in the book uh, about a company called Sealed Air, which makes packaging material. You probably oh yeah, Sealed Air, they're awesome. Yeah, exactly. And they have created this vibrant community in Simpsonville. And you'll be like, I'm sure most people are saying, "Where is Simpsonville? Let me Google it." <laughs> and it's if you ever visit Simpsonville, you'll be shocked at how great a community it is. And wow. And people live there, have great lives, go to colleges there. So it's one of those things, which is, at least in my experience, when I, I mean, as you can guess, I'm an immigrant. You know, for me, U.S. was what I call the left coast or the right coast. You have San Francisco or you have New York. What's in the middle? I have no clue. But now you realize the middle is where a lot of stuff is happening. And that's all enabled by the titanium economy companies. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's actually I'm really an immigrant interesting. as well. Uh, I, you know, so for me, Boston was, yeah, close to New York, <laughs> you know, east and west. You're right. You're absolutely right. Go ahead, Ray. No, but this this is interesting, right? I mean, you're, you're right. They, these are companies that left the industrial belt. I grew up in Pennsylvania, right? They mm. left Pennsylvania. Sealed there, if I remember, is in Charlotte or in that area. And Charlotte itself is like train is there. Like a whole number of industrial companies have moved there. Uh, yeah. They bypassed the the union workforce. Uh, they went to get better, better like labor laws and you know industrial policy in, in those states. Uh, and despite the outsourcing that occurred, I mean, this really created a very, very interesting, you know, manufacturing sector in the American economy. And, and we, we use this all the time. We, we always say, you're right, it's a whipping, it's a whipping bag. Like, the yeah, American economy is dead, manufacturing is gone, you know, we're forever not going to get these high paying jobs back, right? This is something that we, we hit up pretty hard on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and whenever there's an election, and now we've psyched ourselves and believing that the manufacturing sector in the U.S. stinks. So, um, and so this being under-recognized, it's, it's no longer a asset class that investors care about other than PE firms who figured out that, hey, this is a great place to actually make some investments. So, so talk about the players who actually made this call, right? I mean, these are, there's some amazing PE firms. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's it, if these were listed in the book, but they've basically come back and said, look, we could actually make this work almost like the Warren Buffett model. And what, for our folks who just tuned in, Nick mentioned that of the 4,000 companies in North America that make up the industrial tech sector, somewhere between two to 3,000, so 50 to 66% are privately held companies. So as far it's like as the Mittelstadt in Germany. Yeah, so. so only a third of the population can invest in the industrial tech sector because 
they're the ones that are public companies. Okay, go ahead, sorry, yeah, sorry Jimmy. Not available. Yeah, not available. No, and Ray, you stole my uh, punchline on my thunder because that's exactly what we did. I mean, Fernway, I mean, we are not a PE firm. We always say we are an investment company, which is we invest money in companies, but then we play a very active role in helping them grow ah, and helping yes. them scale up. And you hit the nail on the head because we looked at this, myself and my team, and said, look, we are based here in California. We are based here in Bay Area. But we are not the techno jocks. We are not the guys looking at the SaaS companies or the latest and greatest next cryptocurrency or NFT because one, you know, we're not that smart. We don't understand it. But I always jokingly say we are more smart. We said, hey, look, on the other hand, there's these amazing industrial companies with great brands. They've been around for pick a number, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. They're right here in our neighborhood creating value and making products you and I can touch. And so guess what? This was very true pre-COVID. But post-COVID or during COVID and post-COVID, everybody woke up and said, wait a minute, you know, I can't be waiting for something to come from China or Vietnam. I need my industrial base right here in the U.S., whether you needed your toilet paper, you know, which was a big scare, even though there wasn't one, or you know, <laughs> any of the other things which you need. I mean, you need real products. You need products you can touch, you can feel. And those are all made by industrial companies. And that's when the, the renaissance is happening or has happened where people are like, look, you can't outsource your industrial base. I mean, never was. Let's be very clear. I mean, parts were, but not fully. But I'm going to say, you know, and time will tell. But we sort of said, guys, this is really where the real thing is happening. Industrials mm -hmm. is the next big thing. It was not the past, but it's the future. Nick, when we talked to Deb and we talked to Joe, we talked a lot about leadership, we talked about culture, we talked about the hybrid work environment, we talked about Gen Z and what their view is in terms of balance of you know work life. Um, what are the jobs and salary outlooks in this sector? So if we've got, you know, we average about 50,000 views of our show, let's say there are 5,000 uh, college students or early in their career uh, folks that are watching now, what, what can you tell them to draw into this what seems to be an incredibly uh, fruitful sector to be in. Great question, Val. I mean, the, when we wrote this book, we said, people asked us, who did you write it for? And I said, we wrote it for two customers or two suppliers. One is supplier of capital and one is for supplier of talent. Because wow. genuinely today, this industry can be even more bigger if we got more people into it. So that's the, you know, the 21 year old and the 23 year old smart students who are listening to this saying, hey, should I go into Google or should I go into the industrial tech? And people are like, ah, I don't know about industrial tech. But the best part, Val, is exactly this. Just to put things in context, a services job in the U.S. today pays about $30,000 median. Industrial job pays $65,000. Wow. More than 2x. Wow. Yep. So that. So that transition wow. from and, a and, manufacturing and, economy to services economy actually decreased our quality of life, which is why two people have to go to work every day in a family. Yeah. Wow. And, let's, let's shorten this recession cycle we're in with the industrial tech sector. I mean, it sounds like people just need to know. Man, is this the best hidden secret? Uh, like, do you have to be a McKinsey partner to have these insights? How did you, you know, we need better marketing in the sector. <laughs> and actually, you know, since now we have got into this and we are a funded group, I don't want to market it. Let, let yeah, yeah. Let don't tell me about this until he's uh, placed all his bets. Yeah, you know, let's not talk about that. Well, but that's the thing. I mean, when we looked at these 35 companies, and I think I can't tell you how many people I interviewed who were in, retiring from the company. So whether it is the Heikos of the world or whether it's the AZZs of the world. And I mean, the list goes on. We're retiring with a million dollars in their 401k. I mean, you're talking about, this is not about the top guy. I mean, forget the top guy. I'm talking about the frontline operator who joined the company 35 years ago, 25 years ago, stayed through the company, invested in their wow. 401k, matched it. Single contributors. A million dollars. Unbelievable! Wow. Yeah, but but right. not not everybody knows what a hot dip galvanizer is, right? So that that's that's true. That is true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> my, my daughter is sophomore at university. I'm going to have her watch this episode. This is, uh, and then we got to call our wealth management uh, folks, Ray, and you and I got to we got to revisit. Yeah, like what's wrong with your investment portfolio? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Go. Totally. <laughs> no, but, but Ray, but this is the funniest part, right? I mean, look, we uh, we are based here in the U.S. 
And as Fernway, we invest in companies. And the very first question people say is, oh, so what do you guys do? Are you going to move the job somewhere else? And I say, look, like Dabico is a great example. We bought this company. Our manufacturing plants are in three locations. Cypress, California, which is 20 minutes from L.A. I don't know about yep. you, buddy, but L.A. is a pretty expensive place. <laughs> Ditson Bath, which is 10 minutes from Frankfurt, which is a really expensive place. And Stockton on Tees in U.K., where the labor rates are going up. And we have no plans to move manufacturing from those places. Why? Because we've got great people. We create great innovation. So my point is, which is, again, one of these things people say, well, well, wait a minute. You have manufacturing in the highest cost location. And I say, no, we have manufacturing in the highest value locations because those are amazing people, amazing talent. They create great value. Why else would I, where else would I have it? Well, the uh, the regulatory. Hey, why are, we, why are up... you and I Ray talking to Web three Metaverse NFT folks? Nick, you got to get right. back. I don't know. We're, we're, we're change our, our our policy here as well. Yeah. I mean, but but we but, but enterprise you know, software was sexy. Boy, were we wrong. Sorry. We were so wrong. But but it, it is beautiful what you're saying because the the fur. I mean, the capital cost to actually build a, a plant today and the regulatory requirements wouldn't allow you to do that anymore. That piece of land actually is 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 much more valuable sometimes than the plant as well. Uh, in some of those cases, um, you know. You also stress that there's a point here that we don't have a lot of time left to get this right. And you mentioned five years left. Why did you choose that number? And what do we actually have to do? Because we're not a country that's very good at industrial policy. We're so short-term focused on quarter to quarter. Um, you know, we're on day four of a, trying to make up our minds as to how this country is being run in some houses and of Congress. And uh, I mean, but it, it's just crazy. Like we're short-term people. I mean, this whole economy is built on short-term and you'd say, oh my God, we have five years left. Uh, what, what is that burning platform? So Ray, you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head, right? We as a country are very good at reacting. So let's go back to the 60s. We were not the first guy to go into space. But as soon as the Russians got on, we said, God damn it, we really need to go get better than them and put a man on the moon. And you know, guess what? We did it. Fast forward 50 years, we were the leaders or 40 years, we were the leaders in semiconductors and we fell asleep on the wheel and all the semiconductor manufacturing moved out of the country or a big chunk. And now you read about it, you're like, oh my God, they're going to bring it all back in. Will it happen? I hope so. But we as a country are very good at what I call reactive. And we do well. But in the industrial space, I truly believe this is one of the very rare opportunities, Ray, that we can be not reactive, but also be proactive. And this is why we want to put the five-year mark. It's not because anything is magical. But guys, we are already good. You take precision manufacturing like semiconductor, semiconductor equipment manufacturing, which is key to making semiconductor, we we yep. do rule it. The tool, the tool die manufacturing. That's some. That's an area we're good at, right? We also have opportunity zones that we can pair up. Uh, we have training programs that have not built into policies that could be put together. Um, but but why five years? I mean, I'm push you a little bit harder on that. Well, why, why not three? Why not ten? And, and can you tie the answer possibly to what you expect from the educational sector or government yeah, in terms of policies? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, at, at Salesforce, we have globally, I don't know, eight, 9,000 colleges and universities as clients. What should they be doing to enable the future workforce to not only have enthusiasm about the sector, but the right set of skills to make impact in the near term? Or, or trade or trade programs as well. So Yeah, internships, co-ops. Yeah. Ray and Val, they're all connected. The reason for five years is very simple. We need the best talent. And if you look at what is happening in this country with demographics, I mean, you look at the labor market, people are dropping out like flies. Let's call a spade a spade. You have some of the best minds. They're all, I mean, you draw the curve. Most of them are in the 50s. And in the next five years, you're going to have a massive talent drain in the space. Yeah. And if the listener who's today, who's in a high school, goes into college, is going to be coming out, I desperately want that he or she to be going into the industrial tech space. So that means they need to be studying about it in college. They need to be getting excited about it so that when they come out, they are really applying to these industrial tech space and not saying, gee, I went to MIT or Caltech or Princeton or any of these, or any school for that matter, and say, oh, I'm just going to go, you know, be the 111th guy at Google or Facebook. <laughs> so that is why the five-year matters, Ray, because if you really do the math, you look at the demographics, yeah, in the next back. five years, it's law of demand and supply, right? There's a massive outflow of labor, and the guys and gals going to college now need to choose that. Otherwise, we are going to be having a huge disconnect. Huge, important. Got it. 
We are here with Nick Santhanam, CEO and president of Fernway Group and author of The Titanium Economy. This is amazing. I really think this is a, a very, very piece that we should actually be studying more. And uh, you know, the book is available on Amazon. And hopefully you're sending it to policymakers uh, in Congress. Well, they're, they're, yeah. they've got a lot of free time right now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Valen. Sure. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, sir. Wow. <laughs> it's another Friday. Wow. Episode one of 2023. And we get th three authors, three big thinkers, big an innovation thinkers. expert, a leadership expert, and, 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 and a technology industry market expert. Uh, Ray, do us a favor and try to recap the last hour for us in a minute, if you could. You know, we really wanted to kick off the year helping people think about what their strategies were for, for business. And, you know, Deb did a great job of setting the stage saying, hey, look, these are things that are changing, right? I mean, you've got factors that are changing, you know, um, as she would probably say, you know, grow up, you know, grasp the issues, take it by the, take the bull by the horns. And, you know, this is what we're dealing with, right? And, and it's going to require a different way of uh, leading. Right. And, and I think that's just important. Right. And as you're putting your plans together, you have to think about what that means. Uh, and then, you know, Joe was just great about, you know, helping us create that introspection. Right. Uh, take command basically says, you know, get yourself in order first. Right. And then figure out how and you interact with everybody. And as you're figuring out that interaction, right, then people can trust you. Right. Or they can know what you're thinking or, or you know, find empathy with someone else so that they can actually help you move in the same direction. Right. And, and that's very important. We're, we're seeing sales kickoffs. Right. You got all these sales kickoffs going on probably at the beginning of the year, beginning of, you know, end of February. Right. They're all going to be trying to say, hey, let's all move in the same direction. Here's our vision. Here's our goals, right? Here's what sales kickoff is going to be, rah, rah, rah. But, but, but you got you to believe in your leaders, right? And you got to do that interaction. Uh, but what was surprising about the, you know, what was going on with Nick is really just, you know, there are sectors that we have overlooked, right? We've overlooked. Maybe it's because, you know, uh, coastal elites thought that, hey, these weren't important anymore. Or maybe we just thought that, you know, at some point manual labor or industrial was like a dirty word and, you know, we were going to move on. But the reality is like, you know, like my, my brother's a human plumber. He's a GI, right? I would tell you that the physical plumber in the area where I live in probably makes more than the human plumber, right? I mean, I, the physical plumber is making hey, 350 an hour. 65,000 starting salary is pretty good. It's pretty it's, good. It's pretty good. I mean, and and so I think trades have been overlooked. I think policies have kind of neglected it. Not everybody has to go to college to be successful. I think we're starting to learn that. And, you know, the industrial sector is, is you know, you still got to make stuff, right? Yeah. You, you can't yeah, live sure. without making oh, stuff. It's not, absolutely. I mean, you and I are going to wipe our butts in the metaverse. Student, you know? If you're a chemical engineering student or electrical or civil, I mean, you, I, I mean, I, I think the engineering practice in the industrial tech is, is going to be very, lucrative career very lucrative and the problem is they all end up as a mckinsey consultant no i'm kidding yeah but that that's where we are right i mean this is this is really like you know uh, it's, it's a shift we're kicking off the year right vala i mean you know any advice from you i mean you've been talking to people at the beginning of the year as well you know i, I think all 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 of our incredible guests talked about and even, even reference words like grit and persistence and optimism, humility, uh, being interested in others. Um, I think you need to really develop those skills. I think 2023 will continue to be tough. I mean, in the tech sector in the last six months, I think 150,000 jobs have been uh, lost. Um, today, Canada produced uh, an employment number of 104,000 new jobs with a forecast of only 5,000. So they crushed the number that they had forecasted in terms of new jobs. So th there's employment there, but again, uh, there are more talent now seeking those open jobs. So, and I, and I think it will continue to be um, a tough environment, uh, but, but uh, you know, just invest in yourself, invest in folks around you. Um, ultimately the best I can give is, uh, you know, leave things better than when you found them. That's yes. it. Definitely. Leave things That's better than right. when you if, if when when I in, interact with Ray, he always expands my mind. That's why I spend every Friday with him for the last six years. Uh, he leaves me better than when he found me six years ago. So that that's ultimately, no matter what function you have, no matter what company size, whether it's public or private or whatever sector, 
You just have to be mindful and self-aware that you're adding value. And if you're honest with yourself, the minute you feel like you're not adding value, you're not leaving the person or the place better than when you found them, you got to reflect. And Nick kind of warned us about that. We are very good at reflexive thinking. If something happened, we respond to it really quick. Reflective thinking is what's required to be self-aware and truly honest with yourself in terms of whether you're adding value or not. And I think that's a muscle that we all need to continuously develop. You can it, you can create self-awareness atrophy <laughs> if you start feeding yourself things that are not quite true. So anyway, oh, yeah, I don't want to get philosophical TV. on this. You're going to love our Disrupt TV guy, Chris Lockhead. I mean, he really made us Yeah, think. yeah, that's absolutely. Fun. That's Man. exactly. Chris but, talked about that. Um, Ray, next week we have episode 306. Our first guest Ooh. is going to be James Altucher, who's just an Ooh. amazing entrepreneur, an amazing podcaster. His blogs make you think, and he's bold, and he's provocative, and he's on the edge. Altucher can be, yeah, he could be. We could talk to him for an hour. So I don't know how we're gonna. You and I have to be our A game because he's gonna give us just incredible amount of wisdom. Mauro Porcini, chief design officer at PepsiCo, uh, an oh, author yeah. of Human Side of Innovation is going to be our guest as well. I think we're going to limit next week to two guests. Uh, Ray and I are discussing. we got to give them more time. We've got to give these guys more yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I know James, and he's brilliant. I don't know Mauro, but uh, Chief Design Officer at PepsiCo. So that's all that needs to be said. Obviously, oh, a brilliant person with a new book. So, so if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Please join us next week, same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 where Ray is somewhere in somewhere in California, I'm assuming. <laughs> and, <laughs> and happy uh, new year, everybody. New Make year. it an amazing 2023. Excellent. Thank you.